Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you are separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preach peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue our walk through the book of Ephesians that we've been doing since the beginning of this year. If you're newer, newer to us, what I like to do from time to time is stop and explain why we do what we do. And when it comes to walking through the book of Ephesians, you'll notice regularly we'll take either a book of the Bible or a section of the Bible and just sort of walk through it verse by verse. And there's a reason for that. The reason is the belief we have from the scriptures, what the Bible tells us, is that the word of God, the Bible, is God-breathed. And what we mean by that is not just parts of the Bible are God-breathed or parts of the Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but all of it. And this shows up this week, and here's why. I think it's important for us to recognize in Ephesians chapter 2, what we just looked at, if you were here last week, as Pastor Sean preached on verses 1 through 10. Now, now, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, if you've been around church for a while, is just a magnificent passage. You probably put some of it to memory. It's this magnificent passage that talks about we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, but God in his great mercy made us alive. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own, so that no one can boast. You're God's masterpiece made for good works. It is a beautiful passage of scripture. And in my own Bible that I use for my devotions, over the years I've highlighted and circled and underlined and put little notes in the margin. I have studied 1 through 10. But then when I look at my own Bible and I look at what I've done over the years, when I get to the later half of chapter 2, I notice that I've done less underlining, less circling, less highlighting, less notes in the margins. Like in other words, I've spent all sorts of time on the first part of chapter 2, but not a lot on the second half. And what I want us to recognize this morning, if that's potentially true for you, is that it's not just that the first half is inspired, but so is the second half. And so as we walk through texts of the Bible, there are going to be some very familiar ones like last week. But then potentially for some of you, some less familiar passages. But here's what I believe. When we get to this maybe less familiar passage to some of you, I believe that the Holy Spirit of God has a word for our church this morning. That he has something he wants to speak over us, something he wants to speak to you, to your family, about how we should operate in this cultural moment, this moment in time that we live in. 
And so I want us to see Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, what the Holy Spirit of God has for us as we continue to walk verse by verse through this book. Again, we'll be in verse 11. If you have your Bibles, it'll be up here on the screen as well. It begins this way. Paul writes these words. He says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were called Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship and uh, citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, I read this paragraph of Scripture, and I assume there's at least two groups of people in the room. The first is those who have studied this and understand this and have walked through the Scripture before. But I just want to assume in a room like this, or those of you listening online, that there's a number of you who heard that that paragraph in the Scriptures that I just read, and your conclusion is something to the effect of, huh? What? Like Paul is using all of these metaphors and images and we're talking about circumcision and what's done by hand and the covenants and the promises. And it can be just this profoundly confusing paragraph in scripture. And I always just want to try to remind us that anytime you read a section of scripture and you are confused by that section of scripture, uh, I've said it before, I'll say it again. It makes you part of the club called everyone who's ever lived ever. Okay. We are often confused by scripture. In fact, one of the most encouraging verses in the New Testament is Peter is writing in one of his letters and he says, sometimes Paul writes things that we don't understand. And every Christian ever went, amen, right? Sometimes Paul's gonna write things that we're gonna have to really work through it to understand what exactly he is trying to say. So again, I just want to remind you as we're reading the scriptures, if you find yourself lost, that makes you normal. But what we try to do is lean in and break it apart and see what God has to say. And here's what I'm convinced of. The paragraph that I just read out of Ephesians chapter 2 is trying to answer one simple, ancient, and profound question. It is the profound question that Christians were grappling with in the first century, and it is the question human beings have grappled with since the beginning of time. And here's the question, who are God's covenant people? Now, when I use the word covenant, that's a word you'll find all throughout the scriptures. And a covenant is an arrangement, a way that two parties relate to one another. It's not like a contract where if one side breaks it, the other gets to walk away. It is a permanent and binding relationship set up between two parties. And in this case, the two parties are the people of God and God's people. So you can phrase this question a different way. Who are the people to whom God promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Who are the people who God is with? Who is God for? Whose side is God on? See, in the first century, in the people of God, after the life and death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, this was the question. Okay, whose people are God's people? How do we sort through who God's people really are? And this, in fact, has been the human question throughout all of time. To look to God and say, well, who does God love and who does God hate? Who is God with and who is God against? Who is God for and who has God excluded? This is the profoundly human question when it comes to God. And I think this paragraph we just read in Ephesians chapter 2 It's Paul's attempt to give a scandalous and yet profoundly beautiful answer to that question. Let me show it to you in four parts of the paragraph we just read. Number one, Paul makes it clear that the Jews were established as God's covenant people. When he talks about the circumcised and the uncircumcised, what happens there is he's referring to the Jewish people. That the Jewish people being circumcised was an external sign of the internal reality that these were God's covenant people. In the Old Testament, what God does is he selects a man named Abram. He says, Abram, I will change your name to Abraham and your descendants, like your family tree, that will be my chosen people. 
my chosen people to be a blessing to the world and to be a light to the nations. This is what the people of Israel, the Jewish people were meant to be. This is what God selected them to be. And God will tell the same people in the book of Deuteronomy, I didn't choose you because you were great. I chose you because of my great love for you. In other words, he chooses a people to be a light to the nations. And the symbol of that people was circumcision. So that was something that set them apart from the nations, that the Jewish people, the people of Israel, are these covenant people of God. The Jews were established as God's covenant people. We see that in verse 11. But here's the next thing we need to be aware of that Paul just makes abundantly clear, that the Gentiles were not God's covenant people. So if you don't know this framework or you're newer to church, there's two kind of identifications of people. There's the Jews, the people of Israel, and then there's everyone else in the world, and they're called Gentiles. In this framework, I would be a Gentile, not a descendant biologically of Abraham, but rather someone from another family of the earth. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. And what Paul is making very clear here, what Paul is making extraordinarily clear in verse 12, is that we Gentiles were excluded from the covenant. We weren't part of God's covenant people. In fact, in ancient Israel, to not be a Jew, to not be part of the covenant people of God who were circumcised was an insult. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, David is offended because he says in these words, he says, that uncircumcised Philistine stands against the armies of God. In other words, he's excluded from the covenant. Those Gentiles... Those non-Jewish people, those people who aren't part of Israel, they're not a part of God's covenant people. They are not a part of the special relationship that God has with us. But then here's the stunning thing that happens next. There's the Jews, the Gentiles. The Jews are part of God's covenant people. The Gentiles are not. But here's the stunning thing that Paul is going to say, that through Jesus the Messiah, through Jesus the Christ, God's covenant people now includes Jews and Gentiles. Like in other words, they've been brought together. Those who were far off have been brought near. There's a new people that are formed and this new people is this new covenant people of God that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Again, this is the scandalous claim of Jesus. This is the scandalous claim of his first followers that is no longer limited to those who were birthed from Abraham's seed and Abraham's lineage, but rather it includes anyone who would come to Jesus, the Messiah. This helps us clarify and understand what we do with the Old Testament as Christians. The mistake so many Christians make is to think, well, in the Old Testament, that's how God's people were. But then God got rid of Israel and said, I don't want anything to do with you, and we'll move on to the church. We don't believe that. We don't see the scriptures teaching that. In fact, it's made abundantly clear here in verse 13 that God takes the Jews and the Gentiles, and rather than casting one of them out, brings them all together in this brand new people of God. And here's how this happens. See, inclusion in the covenant people of God, the special relationship that God had with this people, used to be based on the bloodline of Abraham. So if you were born of Abraham, born of that bloodline, born of that family, you were part of the covenant people of God. But then, through Jesus the Messiah, a new bloodline is formed. A brand new family is formed, and this is what happens. There is a covenant made and established in Jesus' blood. This new covenant is established in Jesus' blood. So rather than the defining thing of the people of God, the defining relationship being the blood of Abraham, instead it's now the blood of Jesus. And that is the covenant people of God. That is what makes up the special relationship that we have with God. See, Paul's answer to the question, who are God's covenant people? 
Who are the special people that God loves and promises to be with forever? He says that answer used to be those who were descended from Abram. But now he says it's a different bloodline that establishes that covenant. It is a different family that establishes that covenant. It is not the family of Abraham, but rather it is the family of all those who have trusted in Christ Jesus. I'll put it this way, that the blood of Jesus creates one unified family of God. That's who we are. That's what we are. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for us. Jesus is our big brother, the firstborn son, and God is our father. God creates a new family, Jews and Gentiles brought together, brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. This ancient question, well, who are the people who get to have a special relationship with God? Who are the people who God promises? I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Child of God, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, The answer to that question is you. You are part of God's covenant people. You are the ones who God has spoken over and said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you. I will fulfill my promise to you. See, this is what we see in the New Testament. There's this bringing together of Jews and Gentiles through the blood of Jesus into a new family, not defined by Abraham's descendants or Abraham's blood, but rather by the blood of Jesus, the promised seed of Israel. I want to dial in, though, on verse 13 on how this happened. I said this happened through Jesus' bloodline. And verse 13 will say these words over us. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I want us to understand here that what creates this new family of God is what we see here, the blood of Christ. But twice here in this sentence, you'll see him reference Jesus, not simply by his name, Jesus, but by his title, Christ, the blood of Christ. This word Christ, I want to speak to you about for a moment, because I think it's important when we talk about Christ, when we talk about Christmas, when we talk about being Christians, we are referencing a title of Jesus, not a name that he has. Like I put it this way before, you'll hear the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we've said before is his name's not Lord, middle name Jesus, last name Christ. This isn't the full name of Jesus. These are titles we ascribe to him. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard us talk about the Lord. It's this kurios, this king, this master. To call Jesus the Lord is not just to call him God. It is to say he is in charge of my life. He guides and directs and defines my life. His name is Jesus. And then we give him another title and that title is the word Christ. Now, when we say Christ, again, we are not just using Jesus's last name or some other name we've given to him. We are ascribing a title, a description to him that we believe is true about Jesus. And I want us to pause and linger on it because sometimes Christ can become so familiar that we actually lose track of what the New Testament is saying. The word Christ you'll see comes from the Greek word here, and that's the word Christos. Christos is defined by two things. It is the Messiah and the anointed one. When you say Jesus is the Christ and you say Jesus is the Messiah, you're saying the same thing. And sometimes that can get mixed up for us. Like, what do we mean? When we say Jesus is the Messiah, we are saying he is the Christ. Those are synonyms. So what does it mean to be the Christ or the Messiah? What do these synonyms mean? It means this, that Jesus is the anointed one. He's anointed. Now, what does anointed mean? In the, in the Old Testament, what would happen is if you were being put into a role, an office, a position to serve and minister to and lead God's people, you would be anointed into that office. There would be a ceremony where they would take oil and they would pour it over your head. And in anointing you, you would be put into an office or a role. 
And before you think that's old-fashioned and kind of silly and why would they do things like that, I want you to remember that we do the exact same thing in just a very different way in our culture. We have swearing-in ceremonies, right? We have people put their hand on a book, on the Bible, raise their hand in the air. We swear in presidents and judges and senators. It's a ceremony we do that puts a regular person into an office of responsibility. And I want you to understand that's what anointing is. So for Jesus to be anointed is to say he was sworn in, put into an office. And I want to describe this because this riffs off Old Testament imagery. I want us to understand that there are three Old Testament offices, three Old Testament positions that you would be anointed with oil into, that you would be sworn into. Here's the three offices. The first is the prophets. The prophets are those who would speak for God. Those who would say, this is what the Lord has to say. They would go speak with God. And then they would turn to the people and say, this is what God has to say. In the old King James, you'll hear the phrase, thus saith the Lord. In regular English, it would be something like, this is what God has to say. He would speak to the people and the people would hear what God has to say. This was the role of the prophets. It was to speak for God, to reveal who God is and what God wants of the people. Number two, you'll see the priests. The priests are those who seek forgiveness for God's people. Whether it be in the tabernacle or the temple, they would go in and they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people. And there was a whole elaborate ritual of how they would and wouldn't do that, how they would approach the temple and the inner, the, the holy of holies, how they would sacrifice on the altar, and how they would seek forgiveness for the sins of the people. Now the book of Hebrews is going to tell us that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Only the precious blood of Jesus would do that. So that the priests are foreshadowing the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But there were people who would be anointed into the position of priests. There's the prophets, there's the priests, and then the final position is the kings, those who would rule over God's people. Starting with Saul and David and Solomon and all of the kings after that, their job was to rule God's people, to govern and direct God's people for the sake of their flourishing and for the sake of God's glory. Now, here's the most important thing for you to understand about prophets and priests and kings. Prophets and priests and kings had what we would call in our modern governance, a separation of powers. So you were not allowed to be both a prophet and a priest. You weren't allowed to speak for God and offer sacrifices to him. You weren't allowed to be a priest and a king where you offered sacrifices and you were the king. You weren't allowed to be any combination of this. In fact, there's a famous story of King Saul who gets so frustrated and goes so impatient with God that he offers a sacrifice. He takes upon the role of the priests and God's wrath and anger burns against him because you can be a prophet, you can be a priest, you can be a king, but you cannot be any combination of those. See, this was the Old Testament anointing. You were anointed into one of those three offices. But then when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, here's what we are saying. We are saying that Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills the three Old Testament offices, all of them. Jesus steps into all of those offices and he is anointed into this. Hear me on this. Jesus is the final prophet, the final prophet who shows us what God is like and reveals God's will. The idea that Jesus shows us what God is like is seen in Hebrews chapter one, where it says Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. If we want to know what God the Father is like, we don't have to wonder, speculate, or guess. We look to Jesus and Jesus reveals who God is and what he wants for our lives. And if any prophet comes along, church, and tries to tell you that they have a new revelation that contradicts that of Jesus, you run as far as you can because Jesus is the final revelation of God. That is who he is. 
That's what we stand upon. To claim that he is the Messiah is to be, he is anointed as the final prophet of God. Number two, he is the final priest who forgives God's people. That on the cross of Jesus Christ, he offers once and for all a sacrifice for the sins of God's people, for the sins of the world. On the cross of Jesus, he cries out, it is finished. No more sacrifices needed. Sin is forgiven in me that you would trust in me for your salvation. Jesus is the final priest who forgives God's people. So once again, child of God, if anyone ever claims that there's any kind of sin or error or or failure in your life that God could not possibly forgive, that God could never work through that, that this sin runs too deep for God to ever forgive it, you turn and walk away from that person because Jesus is the final priest who said it's finished. That's what he spoke over your life. He is the final priest. No more sacrifices. No more earning God's salvation. It's all done. When we say Jesus is the Messiah, he's the final prophet. He's the final priest. And then hear me, Jesus is the final king who rules not just God's people, but all of creation. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, exalted for all of eternity. And if anyone ever comes to you and claims there is an authority that is higher than Jesus, you turn and you do not listen to that person because our king sits on the highest throne of heaven and he cannot be outdone by anyone. That's what we believe. That's where we stand. To say that Jesus is the Messiah, to say Jesus Christ is to claim he is the anointed one, anointed as the final prophet, the final priest, and the final king over God's people. It is to recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, all of the Old Testament signs and symbols. Jesus steps in and says, it's all on me now. That is how we are brought near, by the precious blood of Christ. It goes on this way in verse 14. It says, for he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which which he put together their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those of you who are near. For through him we have both access, we both have access to the Father, by one spirit. Again, the ancient and profound question the people of God were wrestling with was the question of who are God's covenant people? How do we relate to God? How do we have a relationship with God? And how do we get included in that covenant people? And some of the answers started coming up. What we need to do is we need to reject Judaism. We need to reject Israel and move on to a new religion. But what's taught clearly in the New Testament is this, that Jesus did not come to create a new religion. It wasn't that God at one point wanted everyone to be Jewish and now he wants them to be Christian. It's that God has fulfilled his promises in Judaism through the Messiah that the whole world might be included in the family and the people of God. In fact, you can see that clearly if you're reading in your scriptures here, verse 15, it says the purpose of Jesus doing all of this. And it says clearly in verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. So here's what I want us to know. That Jesus did not come to create a new religion. It's actually much bigger than that. Jesus came to create a new humanity. Jesus came to create a new people of God. Remember, every time we see what Jesus is creating, it's not an institution or a campus or an organization that Jesus came to create. Jesus came to create and redeem and forgive and save a people a global people all over the world throughout all of time that he wraps in his arms and says, these are my covenant people. I will never leave them. I will never forsake them. And God says, I will be their God and you will be my people. 
That's the kind of humanity that Christ has invited us into. This new kind of humanity that's not defined by all the ways the world defines humanity. If you just look out across the world, you will see all kinds of dividing lines and walls that are put up that divide people into little boxes. And the church, the new humanity that God is forming in his cross and through, through Jesus' cross and death and resurrection, it is a different kind of humanity that defies the expectations of the world. Like, let me put it to you a few ways this morning. Number one, the new humanity that Jesus is creating transcends national borders. It transcends national borders. Here's what I mean by that. So Friday night, I was watching the Olympics and just kind of got to tune in for a little bit. And I was watching a snowboarding event. And, and this guy had lost in a previous event. And he was getting up to snowboard. And, and listen, I don't, I don't know anything about snowboarding. I don't know anything about the sport. I don't, I don't really know anything about this guy. I'll probably never meet him. I know nothing about him. But I saw that little American patch on his side. And when he came in first and won the gold, I'm just like on my couch, like USA, right? I'm so excited. Why? Because he's my people. I look at him and I go, he's with me. He's my people. He's from my nation. I celebrate him, right? I'm so excited about this guy I'll never meet. I do not know. I know nothing about him other than he's my people. And child of God, here's what I need you to know. When you look across the world and see believers in countries that you'll never go to and believers you will never meet worshiping at churches that you will never enter into, you should have that same reaction. Those are my people. Those are my people in Iran. Those are my people in China. Those are my people in Brazil. Those are my people in France. Those are my people in Russia. Those are my people all over the world. And I care about those people and I'm praying for those people and I'm giving generously to those people and I want those people to thrive just like I want me and my family to thrive because I look at those people and I see this is the kind of humanity Jesus is forming that transcends national borders, that doesn't say I'm just going to care about my nation and my people, but I'm going to recognize that my people are the Christians all around the world who God has called us into a new humanity with. Listen, the new humanity transcends national borders. The new humanity transcends linguistic borders. Like one of the most beautiful scenes to me is the scene in heaven in the book of Revelation where it says there's every tribe and tongue and language and nation worshiping around the throne. Like how cool is that? Meaning like heaven is gonna be this cacophony of all these different languages worshiping Jesus in their own tongue. I think it's a beautiful thing to consider that since Babel, languages have just divided humanity. And yet in heaven, what we see is languages actually unite around the throne of Jesus. So when I hear a church service here on our campus on Sunday mornings with our Chinese church, our partner church over here, and they're singing in their language, or, or you've got our Spanish church and they're singing in their language, or, or a church I go visit in Uganda or, or in Ukraine or anywhere we've gone in the past, when we go to those places, we recognize that they are singing to the same Jesus and that despite our language barriers, and we might not know every one of those languages, the new humanity transcends that and brings us all together around the throne of Jesus. It transcends national borders, linguistic borders. Listen, church, the new humanity transcends racial borders. And here's what I know. We live in a moment in our culture where to even talk about race raises the temperature in the room, right? Like things have gotten so intense and in certain circumstances so toxic and so hostile that to even talk about race just raises the temperature. And here's what's happened. Because things are so unhealthy around this conversation right now, the temptation for all of us, for every person, is to run into one of two unacceptable corners for us. Here's the first one we run to. 
You, you can run to a corner where we are looking at a kind of secular perspective on, on all of these issues that are informed not by the scriptures and not by God's will, but rather uh, by a kind of critical theory or p- applied postmodernism where oppressed and oppressor are the only categories, where the only thing we talk about with relation to human beings is power of one over the other. And left out entirely of the conversation is forgiveness and mercy and justice and grace and patience and love. It is completely skewed to one side. It is not helpful. It is not the right approach. And as believers, we can and we should look at any approach that ignores love and grace and kindness and forgiveness and compassion and justice and reject it. We should look at it and critique it and where necessary say that doesn't fit with how we see it. And yet what we can do is we can see some of the ways this has functioned and some of the ways this fails to actually address the deepest parts, this kind of secular way of thinking that's been imposed on our culture. And here's the danger, church. The danger is we can look at ways this has not worked and then we can run away from that as hard as we can into a different kind of corner. And so many Christians have run into this corner because we don't want to be associated with that kind of critical theory, applied postmodernism way of thinking. We run to the corner that says racism is no longer an issue. It was just a thing of the past. It's no longer a thing. Let's not talk about it. Let's not waste our breath talking about it. Certainly not in church because that's no longer a thing anymore. And if you have come to believe that any sin in this world, up to and including racism, is no longer a thing anymore, I think you have a very skewed view of the curse of sin that has been put upon this world. Like that sin of all different kinds is going to be with us and is going to be in our lives and in our world until Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. And what we want to recognize is that we can't just punt this into the past or pretend that all sin is still here except this one thing. We don't want to run into this denial kind of corner where we pretend this isn't an issue. So what do we as Bible-believing Christians do? Well, we're going to reject a theory that's imposed on this from the secular world onto how we think about this. We're going to reject a denialism that says this is no longer an issue. And instead, we're going to use the language, vocabulary, and images the Bible gives us to talk about this. And what is the Bible saying here? You've got Jews, this race of people. You've got Gentiles, which is every other race and people. And it says they've been brought together. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. They've been brought together into this new humanity. So what are we going to use? We're going to use the Bible's language around talking about issues of race and ethnicity and every tribe and tongue and language being together. We're going to avoid the extremes. We're going to avoid the ways that are just not helpful. And we are going to stand upon what the word of God tells us with respect to race. And here's what we see in this passage, that there is this new humanity that transcends racial borders. Like it just overcomes that. And instead we're brought together in this new kind of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. The new, this new humanity transcends national borders, linguistic borders, racial borders. Listen, it transcends economic borders. This matters and is important for us. I think, again, if there's an unhealthy conversation in our world, it's about money. And when it comes to the church, our temptation is to think that only one type of person, when it comes to money, gets into God's new humanity, gets into God's kingdom. There's a mistake and an error we can make on this side where we buy into, and we've talked about this before, this prosperity gospel that says, if you believe and trust in God, you will be rich, you will be healthy, you will be wealthy, everything will be successful for you. And child of God, I want you to know on the authority of the word of God and on the witness of the apostles of Jesus, this is false. It is a lie. The idea that if you just trust God, he'll just pour money into your bank account. You'll be rich and wealthy and happy and everything will go well. This is not what is taught in the New Testament. But then again, 
Some people in reaction to this prosperity gospel have just run the opposite direction into what could be called the poverty gospel, where the idea is if you have many money or wealth of any kind, you can't be part of the saved and redeemed people of God. You can't possibly follow Jesus if you own your own home or own multiple cars or have this much in your bank account or this much income. And child of God, we just need to identify this as a lie as well. That is not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament does not teach that money is the root of all evil. It teaches that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so what do we want to do? We want to reject both the prosperity gospel that says money is what makes you holy, and we want to respect a, reject the poverty gospel that says lack of money is what makes you holy, and we want to recognize that in this new humanity that God's bringing together, there's going to be rich people, there's going to be poor people, there's going to be everyone everywhere in between, that there are going to be people with more and people with less, and what God is doing is he's drawing all of them together and saying your wealth or not wealth does not define you. My son Jesus does. That's what he's doing. He's pulling us together across these economic borders that separate us as people and as nations and communities, and he's bringing together a new kind of person. And then finally, the new humanity transcends historical borders. Meaning that when we sang earlier, you remember we sang the song, when I stand beside the heroes of the faith. It's one of my favorite lines. One of the reasons I love singing that line so much is when I think about the heroes of the faith, going all the way back to Abraham or Moses or David or Elijah, all of these heroes throughout the faith, because God is forming this one new family in his son, Jesus, I look back on those people and I go, those are my people. That's my story. Those are the heroes of the same faith I hold to, of the same God I worship. So I look back on those people, whether through biblical history, New Testament history, whether I look through church history and I go, those are my people. I celebrate what's come before me and then I recognize this then unless Jesus returns, my children are going to have children. And their children are going to have children after that. And there are people who will be born hundreds of years from now worshiping Jesus who will be part of this same family that we're a part of. See, this is the beautiful thing that God is doing here. He is pulling together people from every language and tribe and tongue and nation, from every century, from every race, from every economic status, from every language. He is pulling them together in a family. And why is God doing this? For one simple reason, that the new humanity is a witness to the universal power of the gospel to save. This is what the gospel can do. The gospel can save anyone from any place and every tribe and any nation and any, any, anything. And let me just speak to you this morning. If you're not sure that God could possibly save someone like you from where you've come from or what you've done or the kind of life you've lived, I want you to know that the universal power of the gospel to save applies to you. That the gospel literally means the good news of Jesus. And the good news of Jesus is that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, including me and including you. And if you would call on his name today, he will rescue you. He will save you. He will join you into the new humanity, this family he is forming, and you will have a home with him forevermore. This is the universal power of the gospel to save the new humanity that Christ is forming, that transcends every border, every ideology, every idea that we have about this world. I want to show you the last paragraph we're going to look at this morning as we finish chapter two. It says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we move to this new metaphor here and he gives this extended metaphor of this house that's being built and how it's being built. And if I could talk to you for, for a minute, I wanna close by talking about the architecture 
of the church, the architecture of the church. See what Paul's laying out here is this building that's being built and this metaphor that he's building out. And here's what he's gonna say, at least three things. Number one is that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets. Now, when you see the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament, immediately your mind should fill in the Bible, the word of God. Why do I say that? The apostles are the representatives of Jesus, the ones who are eyewitnesses of Christ, who wrote down what they saw and communicated to the early church, and that has been written down in the 27 books of the New Testament. That's what the apostles did. The prophets is a stand-in, not just for part of the Old Testament, but for all of the Old Testament, and what they wrote down and what's seen there. So when you hear prophets and apostles, you should hear Old Testament, New Testament, you should hear the Bible, the foundation of the church globally. And Calvary Community Church, the foundation of this body here in Westlake Village is the word of God. It is the Bible. It is what God had to say. That is what we build upon. That is what we talk about. It is what we stand upon. It is what we will not be moved off of. The foundation of our church here at Calvary is the, is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Number two, Paul's gonna tell us this in verse 21, that the cornerstone of the church is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one that you have a foundation, but then in the ancient world, there would be a cornerstone put in that would hold the weight of the building. And if somehow you were able to knock out the cornerstone, the rest of the structure would come collapsing around. So as much as we build upon the foundation of the Bible, it is possible to be a person. And it is possible to be a church that loves the Bible, but does not actually have any affection or love and relationship for Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So we as a church, build ourselves on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the foundation of the word of God, but it must be met with an affection and a love and a desire to walk after the son of God in Jesus. As we've said at Calvary for all the decades we've been around that we exist to make much of Jesus Christ, to be a church that rejoices in him. Foundation is the Bible, the word of God. The cornerstone is Jesus, the son of God. And then finally, he's going to say this, that the walls of the church are the faithful believers. You'll see in verse 22, it says, you too, like all of us, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Like in other words, God is building his church through who? The perfect believers? No, it doesn't say perfect. Through the sinless ones? No, it doesn't say sinless. It doesn't say the superstars. It doesn't say the greatest ones. It doesn't say anything. It simply says the faithful believers. And you, dear church, you are the faithful believers all of us together serving and loving and leaning in and praying and loving our neighbors and loving the poor and serving the people in our church and leaning in with what God is doing. That is how God builds his church. Foundation of the word of God, cornerstone is the son of God. And then he builds it through faithful believers like you and me. And that should surprise us because I look in the mirror most mornings, all mornings, and I'm just not impressed. I'm not like, wow, God would build his church through that. But the answer is yes, that's what he does. He builds his church through you and me and all of our weakness. And how does he do that? He does it because he filled us with his Holy Spirit. And he said, you are full of my spirit. I will build my church through you. This is what he does. The walls of this church are the faithful believers, including you and me and anyone who walks after Jesus, however imperfectly. See, this is the architecture of the church and it's what Paul's trying to get us to understand. But then I want us to see in verse 20, this important part, that this foundation of Jesus, that we're built on the apostles and the prophet, Jesus is the cornerstone. The whole building is gonna rise and fall based on that foundation. So here's what I want us to understand, that the house, the house God is building only grows when it's built on the right foundation. It only grows when it is built on the right foundation. And here's what I'm aware of. 
in moments of crisis, in moments of turbulence, in moments of cultural change, like the last two years we've gone through, in moments where things seem uncertain, the temptation for every church throughout all of human history has been to change the foundation that we build the church upon. It is to shift to something that seems more expedient or exciting or different than what we've previously tried to build the foundation on. Listen, the house only grows when it is built on the right foundation, and we will be so tempted over and over and over again as a church to build it on a different kind of foundation. Uh, Let me give you five examples of this. Number one, um, the foundation of numerical growth will cause the house to crumble. So I I just want to be clear, and I hope we all believe this and know this. Um, I have every desire that our church would grow numerically. And that people would meet Jesus and get baptized and that we would increase our water bill here because we're filling up the baptismal so much. Like that's what I want to see, that hundreds and thousands of people would come to know and love and trust and serve and follow Jesus. But listen, any church that says numerical growth at all costs, forget everything else, the only goal is to get more people in the house, will eventually crumble because that cannot sustain the weight. A church that abandons discipleship or abandons biblical teaching or abandons everything just to get more people in will never make it over the long haul because numerical growth cannot sustain the weight of the building, the weight of the church that Jesus is trying to build. Listen, number two, the foundation of a talented pastor will cause the house to crumble. And we need to think about this because we here at Calvary have an incredibly talented pastor in our senior pastor, Sean. He is a gifted man. He is a godly man. And one of the great honors of my life is to lead under his leadership and to have him be my pastor and the pastor of this church. It is an honor and it is a blessing to us. But if I brought Pastor Sean up here, he would immediately tell you that if the church was ever built on him, it would crumble because the church was never meant to be built on one person. It was never meant to be built on one person, no matter how talented or charismatic or gifted they are. It cannot sustain the weight of the entire church. And we cannot as a church ever build ourselves nor any church build themselves on one person because that foundation will eventually collapse underneath it. It is important for us to recognize that we are blessed with a gifted and talented pastor. Many churches are gifted with gifted and talented pastors, but that cannot be the foundation of the church if it hopes to last. Number three, the foundation of church tradition will cause the house to crumble. Far too many churches crumble because what they do is they hold on to a tradition that they've had for years because it worked in the 1930s or the 1950s or the 1970s or the 1990s, because this is how I grew up. This is how I've always done things. These are the songs I've always sung. This is how I've always done things. And holding on to the tradition of the past will ultimately not allow us to hold on to what God has for us now. That as we stand upon the word of God and the son of God, we must let go of traditions that no longer serve the church, but rather move forward to be faithful to God in this year, in this season. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of the danger it poses of churches saying we've always done it this way. Number four, and this is important for us, the foundation of politics will cause the house to crumble. It'll cause the house to crumble. I want you to be aware of something. This is true of of the pastors here at this church. Um, We watch the same news you do. And we are just as horrified as you are. Right? We see things and go, can you, What? We are stunned, we are amazed, we see what's in the news. And the temptation is ever dangled there before to just get up and then riff on my opinion on what you saw in the news this week. And that temptation is there because politics is the God of our secular age. If you don't believe in God, the most powerful thing in the universe is the United States government. And so to talk about it is to talk about the highest thing in your life and it becomes an idol. But here's what we know. 
if we turn this church into a political rally or us rallying because we want to get on the same political page to support a party or a platform or a politician, church, we are building our house on sand. And that sand will eventually give out on us as the wind comes and the rain falls and the storm comes and great will be the crash of the church that builds their life, that makes their top priority politics rather than the word of God and the son of God. And that's where we stand. And we know that temptation is before us and we know right now in our age, everyone wants to talk about politics every time and wants it to infuse everything. And we will say that that is not our foundation doesn't mean we'll never talk about it. doesn't mean we'll never encourage people in it. It never means we'll never reference it. And it certainly doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't vote. All of those things we should do. We should talk about it. We should vote. We should care about it. We should be informed. But politics will be a terrible foundation, and it will cause the house to crumble if we lean into that approach to church and that approach to the foundation of what we do here. And then finally, number five, the foundation of cultural compromise will cause the house to crumble. What's cultural compromise? It's a word that's been lost a little bit, but here's compromise. It's what the culture says is right and wrong and good and bad. Here's how to do a family. Here's what's right and wrong. Here's how to talk. Here's how to spend your money. Here's how to do everything in life. All right, we have a secular culture that says this is how it works. And then you have what the word of God says. The word of God is gonna weigh in on how you speak and talk and how you raise a family and how you love one another and how you do things with money and how you operate in this world. And here's what compromise looks like. It looks like the church looking across the chasm and going, in order to reach those people over there, we'll change our beliefs and change our morality and change what we think about God and what we think about human beings. And we'll just inch over to them so that we can try to become relevant to the culture. And here's what happens. Every time a church keeps inching to become relevant to the culture, it becomes less relevant to the culture. Because a church that has become just like all of the people all around it is no longer offering anything different than the world is. And so what do we want to do, Calvary? We don't want to walk into this compromise as our families, as our individuals, as our church, and instead say, this is who we are. We stand upon the word of God and the son of God because the church that constantly gives into cultural compromise will cause the house to crumble. That church will eventually cave in on itself and may it never be said of us. See, listen, I want to say this clearly this morning, that the mission of the church, the mission of the church is too important to rest on a weak foundation. It's far too important. Jesus gave us a mission. He said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And surely I'll be with you always to the end of the age. That mission is too important to rest on a weak foundation. We must, as a church, as a Calvary community body, be built on a strong and solid foundation. I'll put it to you this way. Um, this afternoon, many of us, if not most of us, uh, will be watching an event. And that event will be hosted in this stadium right here. Now, um, yeah, the aforementioned shame uh, for me uh, is still sitting heavy on my heart of my vanquished San Francisco 49ers next year, right? Um, uh, but uh, here's what I will be doing. I will be reluctantly uh, and yet somehow joyfully wrote, rooting for the local home team, uh, rooting for the Rams this afternoon, um, and, and watching what God might do with that. Um, so... Here's what I want to point out. SoFi Stadium, this beautiful, brand new stadium, incredible thing. You'll hear about it all afternoon if you watch the game. They'll be talking about all the features of the stadium. It seats 70,000 people. And for games like today, they're going to increase it by 30,000 people. There's going to be 100,000 seats for this game. This remarkable, incredible stadium. And so as we geared up for Super Bowl week, I did the deep dive on how this thing got constructed. And it's a wild story. Like if you've never gone and read this story, just do a quick Google search. You'll find all sorts of crazy things. But here's a picture of the construction site here as they were beginning to put together this stadium. 
And one of the remarkable things as I thought about this stadium is, okay, like how do you start building a stadium like this? And the obvious answer is you've got to build a base, right? You've got to build a foundation. And so here's what happened for them to build this stadium. What the news reports and media reports said is in order to build this foundation, they had to drill into the ground. And at their deepest, they were drilling 100 feet beneath the surface of the ground. Now I say 100 feet beneath the surface of the ground, and most of us have no idea what that really means or looks like. So in order to illustrate this, I had our operations people come into this room this week, and I had them measure the distance between right there, that point on the ground, and the ceiling there. And you know what they found? From that point to the ceiling, it is 39 and a half feet. Yeah, I thought it was a little higher than that. Maybe you did too. 39 and a half feet. That means you take this room, stack another one on top, and another half, two and a half times the height of this room. That's how deep they had to go into the ground in order for them to build a foundation for a building like SoFi Stadium. And this afternoon, when you were watching the game and you were looking at the stadium or they're talking about the stadium and you're considering the stadium, I want this thought to run through your mind all afternoon, over and over and over again, when you see how magnificent this stadium, here's the thought, that magnificent buildings need massive foundations. Magnificent buildings have massive foundations. And church, what is true for SoFi Stadium is more so true for the house that God is building. See, Jesus made a claim and he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building something and it's not this campus here and it's not even our church. It is a church globally throughout all of history in every nation in every century. He is building his church. And here's what I want us to know this morning, that the only foundation worthy of the church is the word of God and the son of God. That's the foundation for us. That's what we stand on. That is what we will not be moved off of. It's that foundation we must stand on because that foundation is the only foundation deep enough and strong enough and steady enough for us to weather all of the storms our culture, our world, and our time are throwing at us right now. A hundred feet deep is how deep they drilled for SoFi Stadium. The depth of the word of God and the son of God is infinite. They cannot be shaken, they cannot be shattered, and they cannot be moved. And church, if we stand upon them, We cannot be shaken, we cannot be shattered, and we will not be moved either. As we consider this, may we always know that there is a Jesus and a word of God we stand on, the word of God and the son of God. And whatever the world throws at us next, we stand here unmoved. We shall not be shaken, not because of our strength, but because of the strength of that which we build on. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks once again for your word. God, thanks for the opportunity to pray and to worship and to know that you are the one we stand firm upon. God, help us as individuals, as families, as churches, just stand firm upon your word, stand firm upon your son, to not be moved with all the whims and the winds of this culture into all the different things we could be tempted by, but rather to be so convinced of who you are and what you said in your word that we would be unshakable in the years and the decades to come. So God, thank you for including us in your family. Thank you for building a new humanity Through Jesus and his blood, God, thank you that you have rescued and saved us. I pray that we would stand on Christ and Christ alone. And all God's people said, amen.